and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We are your local neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the more scandalous and interesting uh, pieces of American history. I am Becca. And I'm Rebecca. And we're... The, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. <laughs> Rebecca hates when I do that. No, I do. I think it's funny. I just, I just we can't ever get it right, and we can't we, ever get it right, even we, when we look at each other. We strive, though. I feel like that's the important thing. We want it to be perfect for you, dear listeners. Yes. So you are listening to Tour Guide Tell All. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have been listening, you know that our episodes here in August are centered around a very important occasion, and in fact, we are recording just a few days shy of the anniversary. Rebecca, you want to tell them what's happening this month? This is so exciting. So 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which the 19th Amendment to the Constitution is the amendment that gives women the right to vote. So we are celebrating the centennial of women voting this month, and it's just delightful. And in fact, the actual anniversary is uh, August 18th. And if you want a more detailed story about that, come back next week when we're going to talk in detail. Uh, but uh, we decided that since so many great events were supposed to happen this year and have gotten canceled due to COVID, uh, we decided we were going to do our own um, celebration on the pod. And so we have spent this whole month detailing different aspects of the suffrage movement. Two weeks ago, we talked about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who's kind of part of the older, the first guard, the first wave of women's suffrage. Last week, uh, we talked about Inez Milholland and Lucy Burns, who are two activists that work right up to passage of the 19th Amendment. Next week, we're going to talk actually about the drama surrounding the passage, so stay tuned for that. But this week, Becca, we're going to talk about Ida B. Wells. And I think this is really important, not just to talk about Ida, but I think it's really important to talk about African-American women and their experience with the suffrage movement. We touched on this a little bit in our previous episodes, but I think this will give us a chance to really dig in. And it goes, I think, without saying or should be mentioned perhaps, that without the abolitionist movement, we don't have the suffrage movement. These two movements really grow up together when we talk about people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony, that old guard or first wave you mentioned. So many of these women are overlapping with the work of abolitionists. And there's this real, I think, synergy between these movements that continues to build through the 19th century and into the 20th century. At the same time though, all the other factors of that time period, reconstruction, this sort of nadir of racial relations in the United States, very much impacts the suffrage movement. And so this will give us a chance today to dig into what can sometimes be an uncomfortable topic, I think, particularly for white feminists like ourselves to really take a look back and acknowledge perhaps the places where the movement really failed uh, African-American women, but also talk about these incredible women of color who made a huge impact, not just in suffrage, but in a lot of these important movements at the turn of the century. And so I'm really excited to talk about Ida B. Wells and some of the other women who were in her orbit. Yes. 
Ida B. Wells is really fascinating. And just a content warning before we kind of jump in here, uh, we just want to make everybody aware, in case you didn't figure this out yet, Ida B. Wells, her story is going to contain some talk about racism and some talk about lynching. She was an anti-lynching advocate, and so that is going to be part of what we discuss. So if that's, uh, we want to make sure everybody is aware that that is coming so you're not surprised. To dive right in on Ida B. Wells, she was born a slave. She was born just a few months months before the Emancipation Proclamation in 1860. She was born in 1862. The Emancipation Proclamation was January of 1863. And she's born in a place called Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is kind of in the northwest corner of Mississippi. It looks rural even today. I looked it up on the map because our listeners expect a little bit more. And her father was a carpenter and her mother was a cook. And she never really will remember slavery. She's much too young. By the time she's actually emancipated in 1865, she's just a little kid. Uh, And her parents have sort of the opposite experiences of slavery. Her mother was very poorly treated, separated from her family and sold to a different owner. Her father has one of the better experiences of slavery. He is the son of the master. His father greatly prizes him and teaches him a trade. So he becomes a carpenter and he's actually quite skilled at it and proves to be very useful and he kind of gets a lot of work that way. So he is going to be, uh, has an elevated status. She is going to eventually be the eldest of eight children that they are going to have together. And she grows up in this brief moment of racial I don't want to say harmony, but definitely reconciliation. Her earliest memories, her father is allowed to vote. There are African-Americans serving in positions of power, both in her local area and in the state more generally. I'd like to mention just briefly, when we think about Tennessee post-Civil War, it's the first Southern state to be readmitted to the Union. It makes a really concerted effort, more so than some other Southern states, to say, okay, we're going to move forward. And so progressive might be too generous of a term, but certainly Tennessee stands out among the other Southern states in this post-Civil War era as a whole. And so there are opportunities that exist there that don't exist for African-Americans elsewhere. And it draws African-American families to Tennessee and to cities like Memphis. Yeah, she's going to be born in Mississippi, but even today, Holly Springs is like an outer suburb of Memphis, Tennessee. So she is very much in that orbit and her parents really prize education. So she's sent out to get an education as a young kid. She goes to uh, what's called a college, but it was for like a middle school and high school age is what we would think of it today. And tragedy is going to strike her family when she's only 16 years old. She goes to visit her grandmother and stay for, she stays for a little while and gets the word that a yellow fever epidemic has struck her hometown. Both of her parents and her young youngest sibling have died in this epidemic. And so she's now 16 and she's the head of the family. She's got a bunch of little siblings uh, that she's got to move back home to Holly Springs to help take care of. And her extended relations want to break up her family. They, you know, no one can take all of the children. And so one aunt wants to take one kid and then a distant cousin wants to take another kid. And she says, no, 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 we're not doing that. We're not separating my 
my siblings. And so she, with the help of a grandmother, she goes to work and her, her and her grandmother sort of raise her siblings as best she can for the next few years uh, until her grandmother dies. And so this is kind of a setup that she's going to use for four or five years trying to keep all of her siblings together, which I think is really admirable. She's eventually going to move to Memphis with her younger siblings and get a job teaching. She is at that time one of only eight African-American women teaching in Memphis. And she's going to take a train to get from Memphis back and forth to get her degree. Education continues to be important to her. And this is where she gets her first bit of notoriety and fame. And you can see sort of a lot of her personality in this one life moment. She takes the train back and forth, kind of like a commuter, not exactly, but sort of. And she buys every time she takes the train, a first class ticket. Now the train in those days, there are women's cars and there are men's cars. There's one that's sort of louder. It's near the engine room. Everybody's doing all sorts of talking and it's where all sorts of society is happening. And then there's the first class car, which is what we would call today the quiet car. And she wants to be undisturbed. This is a good chance for her to do homework uh, or whatever it is, just to sort of sit and read perhaps. And so she always will buy a first class ticket, but on one particular occasion, and this is, she's about, she's 21 years old when this happens. On one particular occasion, the conductor of the train comes through and tells her that she can't be in a first class cabin because she's African-American. And she says, but I've purchased a first class ticket. If I can't be in the first class cabin, why was I permitted to purchase a first class ticket? Which makes a good bit of sense, I think, but it does not make sense to the conductor who tells her that she has to go into this non-quiet car, the smoking car, and she refuses. And the conductor is going to forcibly remove her. Now she's a little bit of a thing. She's not even five feet tall, but she puts in a lot of fight. The conductor has to get someone to help him. And as she later writes, uh, she quote, fastened her teeth on the back of his hand. So she bit him. So she bit him big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And for that, the conductor gets so mad that he's not even going to move her into designated for her. He's going to force her off the train at the next stop. So she has to get off the train and figure out a whole other way home. And at this point, she's so upset, she's going to sue. She sues the train and she's going to win the case. And in case you're wondering, the newspaper headline declares, quote, Darky Damsel Gets Damages, which is horrific. And she gets money. So the judgment is in her favor and she's awarded damages, but actually I should back up. She has to change lawyers. In fact, the first lawyer who takes her case is paid off by the railroad company. So she figures that that's happening when he wants her to settle and then switches lawyers. She wins, gets damages, and then the railroad company is going to pursue this on appeal. And the railroad company has deep pockets and Ida B. Wells does not. And so they ultimately gets reversed in court and she just does not have the wherewithal to continue to fight this. But it is worth mentioning, this is happening in 1883. So we are 13 years before the very famous Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the exact same case. So 
Plessy was a man, but it involves a train, it involves a first class ticket, it involves a lawsuit, and Plessy versus Ferguson is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court, and they are going to just decide in 1896 that separate but equal train cars and accommodations are going to be okay in the South. And so this is very sad, very famous decision that comes down, but she's going to predate this Plessy decision by 13 years. So again, ahead of the curve, as she will be in so many different ways. This is also happening essentially 20 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. We're really at the birth of Jim Crow laws at this point. We're seeing now a generation of this attempt at harmony and living together and the South trying to, in some ways, acquiesce to the demands of newly freed African-Americans. And we're starting to see now, 20 years later, this pushback. And we're starting to see these ways in which, which these institutions are going to say, sure, you want to be free, that's, that's fine, but we're going to find every single way to fight the rights you have as American citizens. And so she is encountering this just at the point where this is really starting to spread through the South in a really insidious and far-reaching way. We don't have the term Jim Crow law yet. That actually comes uh, in the early 1890s, but that's essentially what we're starting to see crop up. Yes, there was a sort of springtime of race relations after the war. And then as you move into the 1880s, you get the very much a backlash and the sort of laws that are going to become the Jim Crow laws become more and more prevalent in the South. And she is going to spend a lot of her life really pushing back against these laws. And at 25 years old, she becomes a journalist. She becomes the co-owner and editor of something called the Free Speech and Headlight, which is a local African-American newspaper. And she's going to use this to skewer racial inequality that's prevalent in the South. And she also, she specifically is going to write about lynching. And lynching is something that's happening all over the South. And she's aware of it, but it comes home to her in a very personal way. So just to understand a little bit about what's happening in Memphis in this time, Memphis had had this massive yellow fever epidemic that had been this tragedy through the early 1880s. Um, it had been devastating for people of all races and all economic backgrounds, but it had really just thrown Memphis into sort of this economic depression. Land was cheap in a lot of places, so people, particularly people of color, were starting to buy up land. So Memphis had, as we move into the early 1890s, a really thriving African-American community African-American wealth. And there was still, though, this kind of old school white Memphis money. And things were becoming very, very heated in the city. And we start to see in the late 1880s, early 1890s, more and more laws going into effect and more and more pressure on African-Americans who are thriving economically. So in early 1892, there is a grocery store that is founded called the People's Grocery. Uh, the People's Grocery was actually located outside of the core of Memphis in a neighborhood known as The Curve. It's basically a co-op. This is owned by a number of prominent African-Americans who kind of cooperatively own this business, including a postal worker named Thomas Moss, who was a good friend of Ida B. Wells, as well as a good friend of a woman named Mary Church Terrell, who's a contemporary of Ida B. Wells, and that these two women will go on and have very similar political paths in their activism. 
Now, Thomas Moss is running this grocery store with several other African-American men. And you can imagine the man who runs the white grocery store in town is really not happy. There's a man named William Barrett who is running a grocery and is really, really angry because he had a monopoly and now the people's grocery is competing. And so they're going to do all kinds of trouble. They're going to start little fights. They're going to start incidents. They're going to blow up a situation between two children who had been playing marbles and got into an argument. They're going to turn this into basically a beating of a young boy into fighting with, with the men who come to this man's defense. They're going to come and they're going to trash the store. They're going to come with undercover cops who are going to come out of uniform and start a fight. And Moss realizes what's happening. And as soon as Moss realizes that these are undercover white policemen who have come into the store purposefully to get these men fighting, they basically submit Moss and two other men, Will Stewart and Calvin McDowell, are going to just give up. They're going to stop defending the store and allow themselves to be arrested and taken to jail. So this is not, I think, the kind of incident that we think would necessarily lead to a lynching. A lot of times when we look at lynchings in the South, they tend to be wrapped up in these sort of accusations of you know, African-American violence or threat towards women. But these are just men who were trying to run a business. They were trying to build a middle-class life in Memphis. And just because they presented a small competition to the white grocer, they have now seen themselves targeted and taken to jail. These three men are in jail. They're sharing a jail with a woman named Alice Mitchell, who had been accused of murdering her alleged lover, Frida Ward. And we're going to have to do a whole podcast episode on that murder because it is juicy. But you've got these three African-American men and the only other person in this jail is a young white female. And so for her safety and for the safety of Memphis, a mob are going to come and drag these three men out of jail on March 9th, 1892. They believe there was something like 75 to 100 white men primarily wearing masks, and they're going to drag these three men out. They're going to torment them and ultimately lynch them. Before Thomas Moss, the postman, is lynched, he is asked to say a final set of words, and he tells the crowd gather there, tell my people to go west, there is no justice here. He's basically saying, as the last thing he's going to say in his life, get out. If you're African-American, Memphis might have been a city at once where we could have lived harmoniously, but there is nothing for you here get out of the deep south, get out of this part of the country. This is going to spread. People who witness it are going to share this. And Ida B. Wells is going to hear what happened to her good friend. And she is understandably outraged. This is so appalling, the entire incident. And she will write a really inflammatory editorial. And she's going to tell Black people what Moss said. She's going to say, get out. She's going to say, leave. And if you stay, you better boycott white businesses. Don't spend your money. Don't support them. You need to only be supporting the people here who are not trying to kill you. And when this editorial publishes, she happened to be out of town. She was in Philadelphia at a conference. And when her editorial publishes, it tears the city apart. There's riots. Her newspaper office is completely destroyed. And her co-editor was run out of town beaten but alive. And Ida B. Wells knows she cannot go back to Memphis. If she does, she will be killed. And so she speaks her mind uh, about what happens to Moss. It's going to cost her this city that has really been her only 
real home and the place that she worked so hard to build a life and a career, but she she can't go back because she sees what's happening to African-Americans and lynching will become an important cause for her. It will become something that she will fight against, that she will write about, that she will really see it imperative as educating people in the North about, understanding how dangerous it is for African-Americans living in the South. And she really starts taking that journalistic mind she has, that investigative reporting, and she starts digging into these lynchings and looking at all this data that exists on why these men are lynched often men are lynched. And it's often the line or the the cause that's often given is threats of black sexual violence against white women. And when she starts digging into those lynchings, she sees that this is, it's nonsense. It's, it's BS in almost every case. That's not the true motivation. Look at what had happened to Thomas Moss and his colleagues. This wasn't anything about violence towards women. It was about running a successful business. And so she's going to publish an expose about lynching and about the motivations behind it and about this cover-up using this alleged acts of violence to justify these actions. She really does take a firm stance about this and does her research. She does her homework and digs into the examples of violence and the fig leaf that people tell themselves about lynching is that it's to protect white women from black sexual violence. And she just puts her fist right through that idea and is like, nope, nope, nope. This is not what's happening. She calls the excuse threadbare and basically says, yeah, this is a cover for what's really going on, which is A, Black women have to worry about sexual violence from white men, like it's the complete opposite. And B, this is a repressive tactic. This is an economic tactic. This isn't because of sexual violence. It's because they want to make sure that Black businesses aren't thriving, that Black customers are given only one option. They're really sort of trying to limit where African Americans can go. And they're really, really trying to make sure that African-Americans know where their place is. So she even is going to say lynching is not going to stop in the South because whites have an economic interest in keeping African-Americans oppressed and repressed. And so she says, until that changes, you're not going to get these lynchings to stop. So that is what becomes her cause, organizing an economic boycott. And she recognizes very early on how... A lot of these repressive measures have an economic backstop to them. And she's going to, the term boycott does not exist, but she creates it basically. Uh, She doesn't name it, but that's basically what she does is say, we can't, you know, we're going to have to avoid white businesses and patronize our own. And that's really what becomes one of her big motivators uh, is to sort of understand that this is an economic problem and to approach it in that way. And so that's why you're going to see her align with a lot of economic thinkers, particularly Marcus Garvey uh, a little later on, but she's really understanding that this is really economically motivated. And Ida B. Wells is so ahead of her time or ahead of the curve, I think, in understanding where power lies. And I think this will kind of overlap into her interest in suffrage. But she realizes that these laws that exist, even if they're supposed to supposedly protect um, Black people, she knows that without economic power, without economic stability, they're going to continue to be relegated. They will continue to be oppressed and repressed. And so she is talking about things that we see that are big talking points in the 1960s civil rights movement. And she's talking about them 70, 80 years before that, talking about the importance of supporting 
from an economic perspective and that money is power. Money is power, business and property ownership is power and the vote is power. She's eventually going to travel to England twice to help garner support for her writing and her activism. Uh, Another big flashpoint that she gets involved in is something called the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It's technically the World's Columbian Exposition. And so many of our pods kind of intersect weirdly with the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. It's such like an interesting flashpoint. I'll mention specifically our Adelaide Johnson mini episode talks about women and the Chicago World's Fair, which is where Ida B. Wells sort of intersects in with it as well. Yes. This does a couple of things. First of all, she gets upset because African Americans don't have any sort of representation. It's supposed to be a World's Fair where we have different cultures and different places and they send over exhibits and it's very lovely and there's nothing thing representing the African-American experience. And they're given like a day where they can, you know, have part of a pavilion to mount a, some sort of tableau. And she's like, what the heck is this? This is ridiculous. And she's going to protest. She puts together a pamphlet about the lack of black representation at the Chicago World's Fair. And while she's doing this, she makes her point, but she also meets a man named Ferdinand Barnett. He's a lawyer, he's a civil rights activist, he's also an anti-lynching activist in Chicago. He's a widower with two children. And Becca, do you know where this goes? They fall in love. They fall in love. And they're so well-matched as a couple, truly. They're intellectual equals. They are both passionate about their activism and passionate about what needs to be done to make this country a country for all and to make sure that rights are being exercised freely throughout the country. And they're just lovely together. They really are. And by all accounts, they have quite a lovely marriage. She actually had been in her younger days very sought after, particularly in Memphis before she has to leave. She had a lot of suitors. She was, you know, the, the dudes were digging it uh, and she didn't want any of them. And so finally in her thirties, she meets, which is at that time, very much later in life, particularly as far as marriage and child rearing happens. Spinster territory back then. Spinster territory, hardcore. And she meets Ferdinand Barnett and they fall in love and she helps to not only raise his two existing children, but they have four children of their own. And Ida B. Wells is like a modern woman in this respect. She's got her activism. She's got her journalism. She's a mom and a wife, and she's traveling around on a speaking tour with at least one of her kids all the time. And it's one of these sort of balancing acts that she fails at quite often, very publicly, like she can't just quite figure out the balance between motherhood and her uh, public life. And Susan B. Anthony, who she does know quite well, writes that Ida B. Wells in these years always seemed distracted, which is rich coming from Susan B. Anthony, who does not have a family, does not have a husband, does not have a domestic sphere, and her whole life is the cause. So Ida B. Wells, she has a family, she has her job, and she has troubles having the two intersect. But I also think it's so important to note that Susan B. Anthony is an outlier in the movement. There are some women in the suffrage movement who don't marry, but they're still, for the most part, in the minority. Most of these women, just like I think today, 
most women will have relationships and have children and raise families. So Ida B. Wells is just trying to do what a lot of women want to do, which is be a working mom, pursue the things she cares about while also raising children with the man that she loves. So Susan B. Anthony often in her writing could be critical when there were women who needed to spend time with their families or had their focus distracted by the domestic sphere. But it is important to point out that Anthony is in that time, certainly a minority, and still sort of is that that idea that the only way to be an activist is to vote yourself to the cause and have nothing else is a very single-minded way of looking at this, very small-minded way of looking at this. It is a very small-minded way of looking at this. And Ida B. Wells kind of takes it on all sides for this. It's really unfortunate. Ida B. Wells sits at the intersection of so many different movements and people. And for our series in... August. She's a generation plus younger than Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but she's still a solid 20 years older than Inez Milholland and Lucy Burns. So she's kind of in that interim there. Uh, She is going to intersect with Frederick Douglass uh, as well. Not for long. By the time Ida B. Wells is becoming prominent, he is at the end of his uh, life and his career. Uh, But he does know of her. He gives her introductions and occasionally financial support. And a lot of people at that time were ambivalent about a woman taking the lead for black civil rights. You know, women are not seen to be involved or should be involved in the in wider society. But Frederick Douglass really champions her, talks about how, you know, how eloquent and meaningful her words are. So he's very much a champion of her. But she also is going to correspond with newer voices in the movement. W.E.B. Du Bois, Bertie Washington. She's going to help to form the, what is now the the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Her relationship with these founders is never easy. She gets sort of left out of the official founding, but she's a part of it. They consider her to be too radical and very much an echo of something that's going to happen later on. The Shirley Chisholm would be the name I'd throw out here. She's going to get questioned whether she is a woman's activist or an African-American activist. And she can't be both. And so you've got these men who are unsure of where to put her. And she sits in a kind of uncomfortable intersection of both racism and sexism. Well, she faces, I mean, there's real sexism within the civil rights movement of this era. Like you said, these men are so uncomfortable with having a woman as a face of this movement or at the head of any of these organizations which is so frustrating. And then as she turns to other groups that she's involved with and other things that she cares about, like the fight for women's suffrage, there's a discomfort with having African-American women at the forefront. There is a feeling in the suffrage movement, especially as we come into the early 1900s, that for women's suffrage to happen, we're going to have to appease the South. And the best way to do that is to keep African-American women quiet and to keep them out of sight. And so a lot of women in the suffrage movement are more than willing to throw their sisters of color under the bus, really. And so Ida B. Wells, I love and respect her because she doesn't let that stop her and she doesn't let that silence her. But it's also one of the reasons that I think for so long she was such an unsung hero because she was constantly being shunted out of the spotlight despite the fact that she was doing the work in these movements and she was doing it nonstop for years and years and years and decades and decades. 
Her relationship to women's suffrage is more practical than anything else. It is a part of the overall nature for activism. It is never her singular focus. And that's something that's going to run her afoul of other women in the movement. For example, Susan B. Anthony kind of looks askance at Ida B. Wells for this. And in particular, she has a very contentious relationship with one of the chief suffrage advocates of the day, a woman named Frances Willard. Frances Willard is the head of something called the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which as you may guess from the name, has a lot to do with prohibition and the passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, forbidding alcohol. But uh, Frances Willard is a really interesting character. She advocates for a bunch of different issues, not just alcohol, but she's interested in suffrage. She's also interested in labor laws. She has a very public dispute with Ida B. Wells. Willard is very silent about the lynching that's going on. She doesn't make any statement about lynching. And then she blames African-Americans for the continued defeat of temperance. So she basically, and this is a quote, she says, the colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt and the grog shop is the center of their power. Uh, This is coming from Frances Willard. So basically what she's saying is the grog shop is code for the liquor interests and uh, the saloon. And she's saying that, you know, African-Americans really like drink too much and are sinking our efforts to promote temperance. Ida B. Wells is going to very publicly call her out. And Wells is, your Ida B. Wells says, I'm not, you know, we're not having this. She says, basically comes right up short of calling Frances Willard a racist, which, you know, spade a spade, I suppose. And they're going to get into kind of a very public fight. At the time, they're both in England on sort of separate speaking tours. It really runs her afoul with a lot of the main suffragists of her day. Wells comes back to Chicago where she was living. She continues her anti-lynching activities. In 1913, she forms something called the Alpha Suffrage Club, which is going to focus on Black women's suffrage. She pushes the city to enforce a law that is a new state law that enables partial women's suffrage. So she's going to, uh, in 1913, she's going to, women are given the right to vote for presidential electors, mayor, aldermen in Chicago, some other local offices. And she's going to form this club to get African-American women and garner their support for promoting not only the vote, but also get African-American women involved and engaged in politics and to elect African-Americans to public office. She's going to do this with a white woman named Belle Squire, which is an absolutely excellent name. And they are together going to get the first African-American alderman elected in Chicago, a man named Oscar DePriest. So this is happening in 1913, alongside something else that happens in Ida B. Wells' life in 1913. You want to take this one? Let's just talk for a moment that this group, the group that she founds, the Alpha Suffrage, is one of a handful of groups for African-American women that are starting to be formed in this era to try to connect women of color who are fighting for racial rights, 
as well as voting rights, right? So they're starting to realize that they're getting the short end of the stick in both of these. And so they're forming organizations. This is something that will continue to happen, but they're starting to form their own groups and say, you know what, if we can't get what we need accomplished here, we need our own groups. And so women like Mary Church Terrell are forming organizations. In fact, she and Ida B. Wells will work together to form a group called the Colored Women's League, which will have suffrage as one of its causes, although among other things, including to just improve the conditions generally for African-American women and children in American cities. They're also going to be involved in forming the National Association of Colored Women's Club, uh, which will come around the same time as well. So there's uh, an acknowledgement in this era that these women need to bind together with the fact that they're commonly being excluded. 1913 is when it will be decided that we will have a national suffrage parade. We talk about this in the Lucy Burns, uh, Inez Mulholland episode a little bit more in depth, but just as a quick overview, we are at a point with women's suffrage that we have a younger generation, a generation even younger than Ida B. Wells and younger than Susan B. Anthony and all these women, and this generation is ready for action. So they have planned this massive event. And the scale of this event is really hard to overstate. And for the time period, it was almost unthinkable. There had been no major public political demonstration like this in our nation's capital. The plan is to bring thousands of women from across the country to Washington, D.C. This is being timed for the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. So this is very political. It is targeting Wilson and his lack of support for the suffrage movement. They are going to bring all kinds of women and they're going to do a very public march down Pennsylvania Avenue. And there are going to be tableaus and there are going to be all kinds of spectacle and floats and music. And this has been stage managed and directed within an inch of its life because it is all about how it's going to look. And the problem is that there is a feeling from the National American Women Suffrage Association, NASA, which is organizing this parade, that they have to toe the line in the South. They are very concerned about losing support from Southern white women. They're concerned about losing support from Southern politicians. And so there's a thought that this needs to be a segregated march just the way that segregation has become the law of the land in many places, including Washington, D.C. in 1913. So this is a decision that has been made. And it is not one that makes the movement very popular among African-American women. Ida B. Wells is going to, I believe, have kind of the most public fight back against this, but women like Mary Church Terrell and other women are going to also speak out about this and speak out about this second-class citizen treatment of being sort of shunted to the back of the line, which is literally what they want them to do. They want them to be in the back. And this is not just a handful of women. There are lots of women of color who are coming to the suffrage parade. There are major sororities and women's groups that have been fighting this cause that want to be part of this parade. And Alice Paul and Lucy Burns and these women who are organizing simply say, you know what? At the end of the day, we got to think about how this looks. We need all our women of color just to march together in the back, and that's just how it's going to be. And it's such a sad failure on behalf of the suffrage movement, on behalf of white women. It just, it's heartbreaking that these women have traveled to try to get a measure of equality. They've come to the nation's capital to try to make their case in front of the president. And 
they're doubly discriminated against. They're discriminated against because they're women. And then within the women's movement, they're discriminated against because they're women of color. And it's just such a heartbreaking moment. And Ida B. Wells, because she's that person, she's, you know, badass. She's going to say to Alice Paul, look at, no, I want to march with Illinois. I want to march with my state delegation. And Alice Paul like tells her, no, sorry. And it's not just Alice the head of the Illinois delegation, even though Ida B. Wells is one of the most prominent members of their group, says, sorry, you got to go, you got to go to the colored section, which I like to point out that it's, it's the Illinois delegation, her own delegation that's saying, sorry, we appreciate what you've done, but for appearances, we need you to go to the back. So as much as they keep throwing this on the shoulders of women in the South, this discrimination and racism is abundant among the movement. And so what I'd be well is to say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to the back to march in the back like a second class citizen. I'm here, I'm gonna march with Illinois. And so she does, she kind of sneaks in and she knows there's a, obviously a bunch of women in the delegation that she knows she, one of them is going to literally pull her in and Ida B. Wells marches along with the white delegation from Illinois. So she basically tells Alice Paul to stick it and does what she kind of wants to do, which is kind of Ida B. Wells general. And she doesn't just march. She's going to visibly link arms with Belle Squire and Virginia Brooks and her friends in the Illinois delegation. And so it is going to be very clear that they're linked that the fight for women's civil rights is universal, that what Ida B. Wells is marching for is the right for all women to vote and for all women to have equality. And she does at least have her colleagues, her true friends who are willing to march side by side with her. So she doesn't just slip in unnoticed. She's like, I'm going to grab onto these women and I'm going to show that we are joined together and we're in this together. And it's such a great, powerful moment. And it's noted. It's noted in the press. It's noted among the suffragists who will write their remembrances and memoirs about this, that this was a key moment. People remembered this happening because Ida B. Wells knew how to how to make a splash. She had that kind of a personality though, it seems like. From what I've read about her, she was a little prickly. She had trouble uh, with people who weren't as committed to the cause as she was. She was very, like, she would point out somebody's flaws and that turns a lot of people off. Or at least this is what other people have written about her is that she was, she could be a little bit prickly sort of person to person. I don't know how much of that is coded as racial or sexist language. That's an open question, but she does continue to stick with her activism. During the First World War, she uh, is labeled by the Wilson administration as a race agitator, which honestly sounds more like a badge of honor than anything else, because Wilson's again the worst. She is going to work with Marcus Garvey, who we already mentioned, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. She is going to continue to agitate on behalf of civil rights against the Wilson administration, who is abysmal uh, on civil rights. The Wilson administration has a terrible record, uh, not only with women's rights, but also civil rights, because again, Woodrow Wilson is trash. Uh, she is going to run against Mary McLeod Bethune for presidency of the National Association of Colored Women. Uh, they choose Mary McLeod Bethune over Ida B. Wells because Mary McLeod Bethune is considered less 
radical, more conciliatory, more, you know, go along to get along. And Ida B. Wells is a radical and um, doesn't, doesn't make friends as easily. She is involved in a struggle for black worker rights with the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. So she's an early kind of union activist, particularly for uh, African-American unions. Uh, and this activism is going to continue right up until the end of her life. In 1930, she, at the age of 68, is going to run for the Illinois State Senate. She doesn't do very well. She loses abysmally. But she says, well, we've learned a lot and we're going to apply these lessons to the next time we run for something. Uh, unfortunately for Ida B. Wells, there is no next time. She dies a year later in 1931 of something called uremia, which is a kidney ailment and uh, is buried alongside her husband, Ferdinand Barnett, in Chicago. Now, Ida B. Wells' legacy, she has been called the mother of intersectionality which I think is a really great and very apt description. Uh, no matter how influential she was, her contributions get overshadowed, diminished, and outright ignored by both white women and black men. So she sits, again, at this very uncomfortable intersection. Yeah, uh, when we were working on this episode, I was really trying to dig in because there are Ida B. Well Barnett descendants living today because she had children who had children. Um, and her great-granddaughter was quoted as talking about her great-grandmother and saying this, I think Ida B. Wells should be remembered as an African-American woman who battled both racism and sexism at a time when it was extremely dangerous to speak out. She used her gift of writing, speaking, and organizing to help shed light on injustice. She was extremely brave and held steadfast to her convictions, despite being criticized, ostracized, and marginalized by her contemporaries. And I think that really does sum it up. As much as she was constantly sort of diminished or ignored or criticized, she never stops. Nothing keeps her from doing this work. She really, once she becomes an activist, it does not end until her dying day. She never sort of gives in. She's never willing to kind of, I don't want to say she's not willing to compromise. That's not it. But she's not willing to like you said, go along to get along. She's not willing to ignore injustice, even though that might be an easier way to deal with it sometimes, right? Is just ignore it or um, take your win and go. Uh, that's not who she is. There's another great Ida B. Wells quote that I love that I think illustrates who she was in terms of that prickliness and that inability to give up. She was quoted uh, later in her life as saying, I'd rather go down in history as one lone Negro who dared to tell the government that it had done a dastardly thing than to save my own skin by taking back what I said. And that if that's not speaking truth to power, I don't know what is. It 100%. I love that. The thing I think about Ida B. Wells is that she really is, for feminists, she's a really uncomfortable person to talk about because she exposes the divisions that have always existed within feminism. That white feminism has not always served the needs of African Americans and other people of color. And that's not just with suffrage that does not end there. It comes through with second wave feminism. Uh, and then it's going to come through again, sort of more in a more modern context. There's a large wave of sort of the current feminist movement that, you know, is it feminism for white women or is it feminism for all women? 
And this is something I feel like this is kind of her greatest legacy is that we should be looking for a more inclusive feminism that, you know, the needs of uh, what it means to be a feminist for all women and including all women's needs in the push for equality. Because if our African-American sisters, our Latinx sisters, our Native American sisters are not equal, we are not equal either. And so I feel like that's kind of where she, that's her greatest legacy is the, it is uncomfortable to talk about her because we still struggle with a lot of these issues and we still have not resolved them. And so that's why I feel like it's important that we do keep talking about her because she pushes us to examine the flaws within the movement, the entire length of the movement from Seneca Falls all the way up till 2020. Absolutely. And talking about her brings to mind for me to Dorothy Height, who we were tweeting about the other day. But I think about something, a, a woman like Dorothy Height, who comes as this next generation, again, at this intersection of feminism and civil rights. And, you know, Dorothy Height with the March on Washington in 1963, really pushing for a female speaker. And ultimately, again, these men in the movement saying no you know, we're going to have 10 speakers and they're going to be men because people listen to men. They don't listen to women. And you women can do the work of the movement, but you can't be the face and you can't be the front of it. And I think that she was calling that out again, ahead of the time to say, wait a second, we are just as much our race as we are our gender. We face this just as much as you do as a man, if not doubly so. I am sort of pleased to see in the last, I think, 20 years, a bit more attention being paid to Ida B. Wells, Barnett, and her legacy. There are places you can visit. There are landmarks and museums, both in Holly Springs, Mississippi, as well as in Chicago. She has gotten a lot of the honors that exist today being added to things like the National Women's Hall of Fame. The New York Times did a belated obituary for her a couple years ago, a project that they've been doing, going back to overlooked women and writing the full obituary obituaries that were really due to them. We're starting to see sort of more markers and more inclusion. Uh, There is one tiny place that you can see Ida B. Wells honored in Washington, D.C. Rebecca, do you know where it is? I know there's one coming up, the mural at Union Station, but that's not going to be permanent. There is going to be a mosaic that will be laid in Union Station to honor her. We'll put in our show notes uh, an event that our friends at A Tour of Her Own will be hosting as part of that. But actually, there is something called the Extra Mile in Washington, D.C. It's the Extra Mile National Monument. It is essentially sidewalk markers. They're embedded in the sidewalks in downtown D.C. There are 37 of them, many of which are women, actually, which is fantastic. And she is one of the women who is included in the Extra Mile. So uh, if you're ever walking through downtown D.C. and you look down and you see these plaques, that's the Extra Mile. And uh, I I love it because it's got a really interesting mix of people who are honored. But that is the one place in Washington, D.C. outdoors that you can go and see her honored every day. Additionally, there are some artifacts related to her at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, as well as the National Museum of American History. And we don't talk about the present day too much on this pod, but I would like to just give a shout out. I feel like Ida B. Wells would enjoy this. If you're interested in these issues in a more modern context, I cannot recommend the book highly enough. It's called Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. It came out this year and it talks all about women that the feminist movement leaves behind. African-American women, people of color, uh, Latinx, etc., and how their issues and white feminist issues diverge. And just a shout out for that, because it's really, I think, something that is, that's her legacy today is how we best deal with these problems. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, we were using her to illustrate, I think, this intersection, but please know there were a massive number 
of African-American women involved in the suffrage movement. We will hopefully have episodes uh, in the future uh, about some of these women, particularly Mary Church Terrell. But she is a great representation, but certainly one of many who fought very hard for women to have the vote. And then even after the 19th Amendment is ratified, fighting to make sure that right to vote was actually accessible for women of color and fighting against all of these voting restrictions and disenfranchisement that would come along. Yeah, we need to do a deep dive into like second wave feminism, African-Americans. I'm thinking Dorothy Height. I'm thinking Flo Kennedy. Like that'd be some fun times. You know, and we just touched on her briefly, Mary McLeod Bethune, which she's she's fascinating because she is not as radical as Ida B. Wells, but Mary McLeod Bethune also gets a ton done and a ton accomplished. She really, really does. <laughs> Makes it happen. So here we are. I love Ida B. Wells. We'll put some links in our show notes just to some additional resources. She really benefits from reading her writing and reading these editorials and, and exposés that she wrote, um, particularly when she's talking about lynching. It's hard to read, but it's important to read and necessary to read. And she targets it so beautifully and, and so eloquently and so passionately. So we'll, we'll put some links to that. And then one more, one more episode as we wrap up our suffrage centennial. So this is where we're building to as we get to August 18th, 1920. We have we have conflict. We have women who have been staging very public demonstrations. We have this tension along racial lines as we get closer and closer to ratification. So all of these things we've been talking on are going to play into our episode next week. So I hope that you will tune in. Yes, it's very exciting. I'm super excited for the next week's episode. There's a little bit about Tennessee. We get into some state legislature fun. Uh, we talk about the many intersections of the movement and 72 years of struggle comes to a head uh, on a very hot day in August of 1920 and uh, turns on, I don't want to spoil too much, but the whole of women's suffrage can be seen to turn on a letter from one mother to her son. So come back next week uh, to hear about that. And it's very exciting. We want to thank you so much for tuning in to Tour Guide Tell All. If you like what you're hearing, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We love to hear what you have to say. Uh, no matter how you listen to the podcast, we love your subscriptions, your reviews, your ratings. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell. That's a great way to send us questions. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think about suffrage 100 years later, uh, the figures that you've heard about or questions you might have, what you think of this series. You can also email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. Ideas for future episodes things you want us to dig into. Uh, we're hoping to hear from you about suffrage. We might address that a little bit uh, next time we record. Hear your feedback. We are on Facebook and the Instagrams, uh, Facebook at Free Tours by Foot HQ, Instagram at Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to further support the pod, we love our Patreon subscribers. Uh, love you so much. Love you. Uh, Tour Guide Tell All Patreon. They get extra special goodies and fun times. And so we are grateful for all of their support as well. Definitely come back next week. It's going to be a barn burner. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Tour Guide Tell All is brought to you by some of the fine guides at DC by Foot, one of the many cities covered by free tours by foot. And as we start to reopen cities, we are giving private tours. Please check us out at freetoursbyfoot.com. Tour Guide Tell All is Rebecca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, 
Camden Arseniega, and me, Dan King. <laughs>